0: How God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is John, part one. Well now, we've been talking about the Bible as a library made up of many different kinds of books, and there are two facets of the Bible that we need to hold in balance. First of all, there's a variety, and secondly, there's a unity. And the variety is due to the fact that there are 40 different authors in the Bible, spread over a period of about 1400 years, and writing in three languages, and not one of them realised they were writing the Bible, not one. But there's a great variety because the Holy Spirit did not use people as if they were word processors. Do you understand what I'm saying? He used their personality and their different styles. So there's a great variety in Scripture, and yet through it all there runs a unity. That's because it had one divine editor. So it had 40 human authors and one divine editor, and that means we've got variety and unity. Now different groups of Christians are afraid of one or the other. Liberal Christians, as we call them, are afraid of the unity of Scripture. They want to be able to pick and choose and set one part against another and tear it to pieces and read the Bible with a pair of scissors in their hand and cut out what doesn't fit in. But evangelical Christians are afraid of the variety. They're afraid of finding contradictions or of inconsistencies and there are apparent differences that you need to study very closely to resolve and we are studying together the variety of Scripture and we're finding that each book is different from every other book. I find that enriches the Bible for me. When you just pick texts out of the Bible, you're treating it as a unity, almost a uniformity as if it's all just one book with one message in one style with one content, but it isn't. It's a library of different books. And so we come to John's Gospel. Of course, the Bible being the Word of God reflects God himself, and in God himself there is variety and unity. The Father and the Son are different from each other and the Spirit is different from Father and Son, and yet we believe in one God. There's an incredible unity there, even with the variety, and that's reflected in God's Word. The are different personalities writing a scripture, each with their own insight or their own style, and yet somehow the Holy Spirit, the divine editor, has brought a beautiful unity to this whole library. And if you read the first three chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible, as Genesis 1 to 3 and Revelation 21 and 22, you'll be astonished how they hang together. You'd think the same person wrote both and was just tying all, up, all the loose ends up right at the end. Well now the first thing that hits you with John is what a contrast there is to what we call the synoptics. The synoptic, the view together, the first three Gospels all look at Jesus from one side as it were. Matthew, Mark and Luke all look at Jesus from one side, whereas John seems to be looking from quite a different point of view. So they are synoptic, they're all looking together, but John is looking from another side. I'll take it a little further. These are looking at the outside of Jesus, whereas John is looking at the inside of Jesus. Remember what I said in the last talk on Matthew? that there are three phases of interest in a great man who's lived. The Phase number one, their interest is in what he did. Phase number two, in what he said, but phase number three is in what he was and John belongs to phase three. He's looking at Jesus from the inside. What was he like? What was his real person? Now the contrast can be drawn out specifically in five ways. First of all, John omits a lot of material that there is in the first three Gospels. Now is he omitting it because it's already been said so well and so frequently, or is he omitting it for a special reason? We shall find it's a special reason, but here is what he's omitted. There's no mention of the conception or birth of Jesus in John. There's no mention of his baptism There's no mention of his temptations. There's no mention of any casting out of demons. There's no mention of the transfiguration when he took Peter, James and John up the mountain. There's no mention of the last supper of the bread and the wine. There's no mention of Gethsemane and the struggle that Jesus had in Gethsemane. There's no mention of the ascension now perhaps you never notice that because when you read the Bible you don't notice what's not there. But it's rather important to notice what's not there. Why should he leave all those out? Because they were irrelevant to what he wanted to say. He's telling us something quite different from the other Gospels and there was no point in including all that. There are only seven miracles in John, whereas in the other Gospels there are dozens. There is almost no mention of the Kingdom in John. That is a surprise because it's everywhere in the other three. In fact, the word only occurs twice, once when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and says, unless you're born again, you can't see the Kingdom of God. And the other was to Pilate, where he said, my Kingdom is not of this world. But apart from that, never mentions the Kingdom. Well, that's the first contrast. Now look at the second. Just as there are omissions, there are some very important additions. Of the seven miracles that John mentions, five are completely new. Only two are repetitions. Five are new. They start with water into wine and they finish with the raising of Lazarus. Now why has John made a totally different selection of the miracles? And one clue is that he doesn't call them miracles, he calls them signs and a sign always points to something beyond itself. And he sees the miracles as very significant. Now you see, the ordinary person is only interested in seeing the miracle. John is interested in saying, what does that miracle point to? And he looks through the miracle, beyond it, to try and understand what it's saying. And so he calls the miracles signs and he chooses the miracles that are the clearest signs to what he wants to point his readers to. So there are additions. Peter and the foot washing only occurs in the fourth Gospel. That's a very important story to him. Uh, As far as the people go, most of the stories about people in John are about individuals, Jesus talking one to one the woman at the well of Samaria or Nicodemus or whoever, whereas in the other Gospels he's talking to crowds. Great crowds follow him and listen to him, but in John he's talking one-to-one all the time. Furthermore, there are these seven big statements in John about Jesus himself, I am. I am the bread of heaven, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth and the life, I am the true vine. Now how come the other writers missed those? That to me is almost incredible, such important statements and yet the other three somehow forgot them. They just didn't register with the other three writers but with John. Those are among the most important things Jesus ever said because they are signs, pointers to who he was, which is John's interest. Then there is a change of emphasis. The other Gospels, based as they are on the outline of Mark, tend to use his framework of 30 months in the north in Galilee, followed by six months in the south. But John is quite different. Almost all of John is in the south, and interestingly enough, earlier rather than later. Now again, there appears to be a contradiction. Matthew, Mark and Luke say Jesus spent the first 30 months of his life in the nor- of his ministry in the north, yet John is saying he was in the south at that time. And again, liberal scholars love to point to the fact he is a contradiction, so they can't both be historically accurate, but actually if you read John carefully you'll find that Jesus did go south from the beginning but for the feasts. Like a good Jew, he went up to Jerusalem three times a year and John concentrates on his visits south rather than what he did in the north during that earlier period, so there's no contradiction. John is highlighting those three visits a year. To the Feast of Tabernacles, for example, which none of the others even mentions, but Jesus went up for that feast and said some pretty important things at it. So are you getting the feel of the difference? Let's go to a fourth thing, the style. There are no short parables. Instead, Jesus seems to be involved in endless arguments, in long discourses. Instead of the simple short stories. And it does seem that when Jesus went south, he changed his style of teaching altogether, largely because in the south he was involved in arguments all the time with the Jews about who he was. Uh, John chapter 8 is a very uh, good example of this where the Jews say very nastily to Jesus, they say, we know who our Father is, And then they say again, and we are not illegitimate children, we're not bastards. Now that was nasty, wasn't it? But Jesus answered it by saying, I know who my father is, you don't know him, but I know him. And the whole thing is a discussion, a dialogue, a very hot argument between Jesus and the Jews. Which brings me to a very important point. When we read in John's Gospel that the Jews, hated Jesus, that Jesus was always arguing with the Jews, that the Jews crucified him, we make the very big mistake of applying that phrase to the whole nation. And alas, it's caused anti-Semitism for 2,000 years and it's very sad, the history of Christian attitude to Jews, you killed Jesus. But listen, when John says the Jews, he means the Southerners, the Judeans. He does not mean the Galileans. Now, do you understand what I've just said? That's very, very important. John, who was himself a Jew, as was Jesus, as were all the apostles, was not saying, we are all involved in this. What he was saying was the Judeans were the ones that Jesus couldn't get on with. Whenever he went south, he bumped into the Jews and that simply means Judean. Do you follow me? Very, very important that you realise that John's Gospel is not anti-Semitic, but Jewish people do not like John's Gospel because so many Christians have used it to say, you Jews killed Jesus. But no, many Jews loved Jesus and followed him and started the church for us, so let's be objective in our judgments. The Jews are the people in the south. So there's a difference in style, long discourses, discussion of theology rather than ethics or discussion of what we believe rather than how to behave. There's very little in John about how we're to behave, whereas in Matthew there was a whole lot, but it's about what we believe. And finally, there's a big difference in outlook and this is a little more difficult to explain. Hebrew and Greek thinking are very different from each other and I'm going to be mentioning this again and again as we look at different books of the Bible. Trouble is, our Western education is so Greek that we read the Bible with Greek spectacles and Hebrews are so different. Now, as far as John's Gospel goes, it's a bit of a mixture of the two and John was writing this in a very Greek world. He was writing it in a town called Ephesus in western Turkey as it now is. It was Asia Minor then and it was a mixture of Greek and Hebrew there, and John mixes them a bit from this point of view. The Hebrews worked with a horizontal line of time in their thinking, past, present and future, the God who was and is and is to come, and all their thinking is on this timeline, and time has purpose and progress. Greeks didn't think like that, they thought on a vertical line of space, above and below, heaven and earth. Now when you think in Hebrew terms, you're into a line of history and time is important and it's travelling in one direction and it's going somewhere and God has decided where it's going. He started off, he'll finish it off. But you're thinking all the time in terms of past, present and future and the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, are on that sort of timeline. But John, while he doesn't leave it behind because he's Jewish, nevertheless he thinks primarily in his Gospel of the vertical line between heaven and earth, above and below. No man came, can go up into heaven except he who came down from heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. But you see the kind of vertical thinking. Jesus is from above and he's come to the below he's come down. That's, that's the thinking, it's an up and down Gospel, whereas the others are a now and then Gospel. Do you, you see the difference? Now John is both, but there's a big emphasis on I came from above, this other world, and that's very Greek thinking, the other world and this world, that kind of thinking. And so there's a difference in outlook as well. Now let's uh, go a bit further. That's that difference there. The time, the horizontal line is very much Hebrew, present and future, and the key word in that horizontal thinking is age, the present evil age, the age to come, which we looked at in Matthew. The key word here is heaven and the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son to come down from heaven to earth to save us. Vertical thinking. The major emphasis of the Bible is on this. But as we shall see in a number of books, particularly Hebrews, when we get to that, there's a great emphasis on the vertical line, the up and down, and a combination of the two really. Well, that's the differences. Now let's look at the person who wrote it to get his angle on it, and it's someone very, very special. A fisherman who ran his own retail business selling it as well, as far as we know, he fished in Galilee, But he clearly had connections in Jerusalem and it's almost certain that he had a retail business for selling the fish in Jerusalem once he'd caught them in Galilee. He certainly was a man of two worlds. He was a man of the north and the south, whereas most of the apostles were northerners. In fact, the only real southerner in the Twelve was Judas of Kerioth or Judas Iscariot and he was a misfit anyway, as we know. Jesus found his real support in the north. But John was a bridge between north and south and he clearly had influential connections down in the south. Now of the twelve disciples, I don't know if you ever realised that at least five and probably seven were Jesus' own physical relatives. And that's really quite a tribute to Jesus, isn't it, that he managed to get so many of his family, but not of his immediate family until after his resurrection, none of his immediate family believed in him, none of his four brothers or his sisters. After the resurrection, they became some of his best missionaries and two of them wrote part of the New Testament, James and Jude. But before, his immediate brothers and sisters didn't believe, but his cousins did. And it was from his cousins that he got at least five and seven, possibly seven of his twelve apostles. Now out of those he had three very close ones, Peter and James and John, and out of those three he had one special. Now Jesus didn't have favourites, but he did have these inner circles and this one special. And whenever they sat at a meal of course, they didn't sit at chairs with their feet out of sight under the table as we do, they lay sideways and their feet were right next to the face of the next person. That's why you had to have your feet washed before a meal. (laughs) Since we stick our feet under the table, we just wash our hands, but they had to wash feet. But it meant that you were leaning on someone's chest and literally the person who leaned on the host's chest was the bosom pal, the bosom friend, the closest. And whenever the disciples sat at a table, John was in that position. And in a very modest way, he doesn't name this, but throughout the Gospel he says, the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the one. I was the closest. Furthermore, he was not only the closest to Jesus, but he was the last surviving apostle, the last one to know Jesus personally. All the others had been assassinated by the time he wrote this book so he had to get it down quickly since he was the last. And he'd known Jesus better than any of the others. He'd been in a position to whisper to him time and again. He'd had a private conversation even when they were together with the others. So he had this unique insight. He's now an old man and at the end of his Gospel he he retells the story of how Peter, with typical curiosity, putting his nose into other people's business, asked what was going to happen to John after Jesus had told Peter, you are going to be crucified, Peter. And Peter lived with that knowledge for 30 years. And then dear old Peter says, and what's going to happen to John? (laughs) And Jesus' reply was, mind your own business, Peter. He said, if I decide that he will still be around when I return, that's none of your business Peter, you follow me. And from that day, a rumour went round that Jesus would come back before John died, but that was not what Jesus said and John says so at the end of his Gospel, that's not what Jesus meant. He was just telling Peter to mind his own business. But John did survive and maybe that was why Jesus put his mother in John's charge always wondered why the brothers and sisters didn't take Mary over, but they were killed for Jesus. And Jesus kept John, not just to look after his mother. I think Jesus kept John from assassination because he wanted someone to keep the knowledge alive, that personal knowledge of himself, and ultimately, obviously, led him to write it down. And that's how the Gospel came to us so he doesn't hesitate to expand Jesus' words. That's a bit of a problem to some readers. He paraphrases what Jesus said to bring out the full meaning of it, really believes he knows Jesus' mind so well that he can expand what he said. For example, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, you know the verse. Who said that? It's, it's a strange thing for Jesus to say, it's kind of a third person talking about Jesus in a rather indirect way. For Jesus to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten sin. It's something that someone would say about Jesus, and yet in chapter 3 it's on Jesus' lips apparently. That's the kind of thing you'll find all the way through John. John is expanding what Jesus said because he really understood what it meant and he draws out the implications almost putting it into the mouth of Jesus, but he's paraphrasing, he's interpreting for us what Jesus said and the Holy Spirit is guiding him to do so, so I don't have a problem with that. But it does mean that sometimes you're wondering, is this Jesus talking or is it John expanding what he said? It could be either, but it's still the true Word of God and inspired for us. Now we come to the purpose for which he wrote and that's the real key – And just as Matthew gave us the purpose at the end of his Gospel about discipling the nations and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, so at the end of John's Gospel, as we had read earlier this morning, we have the reason the whole world isn't big enough for the books if everything Jesus said and did were written down. But these have been written. In other words, I've selected what I've written, out of all the material, I've carefully selected these things for this purpose that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you might have life in His name. Now I'm going to retranslate that for you. I'm sure you know the New Testament was written in Greek, and Greek is not the same as English, and there are peculiar tenses of the verb in Greek. It's such a tragedy that they don't always come out in English. There is one tense of the verb which to me is crucial, and it is called the present continuous tense. And it means to go on doing something. And to translate into English, you've got to add the two little words go on. For example, Jesus didn't say, ask and you'll receive, seek and you'll find, knock and it will be open to you. He actually said, go on asking and you'll receive. Go on seeking and you'll find. Go on knocking and it will be open to you. And somebody says to me, you know, I once asked for the Holy Spirit and nothing happened. I say, but Jesus said, go on asking. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who go on asking him? And if you really want something, you go on asking, don't you? When our children wanted bicycles, Daddy, can we have bicycles? Then not yet, week later, everybody else has a bicycle. (laughs) Week later, save bus fares if we had bicycles. They they go on asking and in the context of Luke 11 where Jesus said, go on asking for the Holy Spirit, he talked about a neighbour knocking at someone's door and going on knocking until he got them out of bed and got what he wanted. So go on. Now then, listen to the verse I've just quoted, properly translated. These are written, that you may go on believing that Jesus is the Son of God, and going on believing, you will go on having life. Listen to John 3.16, it'll change it, it may wreck it for you, but listen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever goes on believing will never perish but go on having eternal life. That changed it for you. It should have done. It's not whoever once believes, it's whoever goes on believing. I'm sure you've heard this of Ephesians 5.18, go on being filled with the Spirit. That's the same tense. The faith that saves you is the faith that goes on believing. The faith you had yesterday won't save you today. Faith you had 20 years ago won't save you tomorrow. Faith is to go on believing and that's the purpose and so John was not written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but so that you may go on. It's written for mature Christians to hold them to their faith so that they never depart from their understanding of who Jesus is and will go on believing and therefore go on having life. and. Eternal life is both a quantity and a quality of life. It's both everlasting and abundant. And it's a quantitative and qualitative adjective is eternal. It's not just to go on living, it's to go on living, really living. The Irish have a greeting, I love the greeting, may you live all the days of your life. (laughs) Now that's what Jesus came to do. He came precisely so that we could live all our lives and really live and have life more abundantly, but you only do that as you go on believing. It doesn't happen if you just believed once 20 years ago. You will enjoy eternal life today if you are believing in Jesus today and you'll enjoy eternal life tomorrow if you go on believing and if you go on believing you will never perish but go on having eternal life. This is so important because this sort of once saved, always saved thing is such a neat cliché and it's not to be found in the New Testament incidentally, but people are resting on years ago. When they give their testimony, they can only talk about years ago, you know? And they're, they're resting in a false security. It's my faith today that saves me today, my faith tomorrow that saves me tomorrow. Go on believing and you go on having life. That's why John wrote his Gospel. So let's look at this thing called believing. There are three aspects to faith in John's Gospel and in his letters incidentally, but we're just looking at uh, John's Gospel now. Now the three aspects, by the way, this verb believing occurs 98 times in this Gospel. That is far, far more than the other three put together. Even Matthew, though I told you faith was a characteristic of Matthew, Nearly a 100 times John talks about believing and it's the verb he uses, not the noun. He rarely talks about faith, he always talks about believing, because believing is something you do. Believing is something active, it's a verb, not a noun. It's not something you have, it's something you do and so he's always using the verb. But there are three dimensions to believing in John. And unfortunately, many people don't always get the three dimensions. I've given them uh, rather complicated names just for a bit of alliteration, but don't worry about that. Alliteration is the province of fools, poets and Plymouth brethren, I've been told. <laughs> well, I don't know. But let's, let's look at these three words. First of all, credence. That means to believe that something is true. The key word there is That. To believe that Jesus died, to believe that He rose again—it's it's believing in certain historical facts. It is accepting the credibility of the gospel, accepting the truth. But of course, that's not saving faith, because uh, anybody could say that they believe that something. I know a budgerigar who sings hymns. Belongs to an old lady in Cardiff and can sing a whole verse of What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And when visitors come to this old folks' home, they hear a little voice saying, What a friend we have in Jesus. And they look around, they look around, and here's this budgie in a cage. And they push money through the bars of the cage for some reason. And the lady who owns it sends the money to a missionary in Africa. Now, that budgie is doing more than most church members. Because It is actually praising God every day and it's supporting a missionary in Africa, see. And the old lady has sent 175 pounds already, you see. It's just a budgerigar, it's not a believer. And there are an awful lot of budgerigars in church saying saying the creed, saying the creed and, yes, I believe that, and the creed is, I believe that. But see, that's only the beginning of faith, to accept the truth. The devil believes the truth too. He accepts it and he trembles, at least he does that about it, he's not a believer. So believing that something is the beginning of faith and accepting the truth, the words and works of Jesus, but then it must move into confidence to believe in someone. How many of you believe in me? (laughs) Not a very great response. (laughs) How many of you believe that I exist? There now you see, word the appeal properly, you get a bigger response. (laughs) But you see, believing that I exist is one thing, that's credence, you find that credible. But believing in me, I don't even know if those who hesitatingly put up their hands actually do. If you give me all your money to look after, I'll believe it. To believe in someone, you've got to do something to show them you trust them. You follow me? that you have confidence in them and that's to believe in Jesus. Accepting the truth is the first step, doing it by trusting and obeying shows Jesus you trust him. If you do what he tells you, you've got confidence in him. But even that is not enough. There is this third dimension which I've already mentioned, which is to go on believing and invariably this verb in John is in this present continuous tense which means to continue believing. In both the Greek and the Hebrew languages, faith and faithfulness are the same word. And sometimes you don't know which it means. In other words, if you really trust someone, you will go on trusting them whatever happens. Do you follow me? If you are really full of faith, then you will be faithful. You'll go on believing in someone Whatever happens and whatever it costs, now that's faith in the 4th Testament. It's not just accepting the truth and doing the truth, it's holding the truth. And he says, you will really be my disciples if you hold on to what I say and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And holding is a vital dimension of faith because you can make shipwreck of your faith many do, they don't hang on there, hold in. So accepting the truth is credence, doing the truth, confidence, holding the truth, continuance, going on, being faithful as well as full of faith and those two words as I've said are exactly the same. So we come to this matter of truth and Pilate in this Gospel says to Jesus, what is truth? that's the question that is being asked in our relativistic age today. People are saying, what is truth? Who knows? You've got your opinion, I've got mine. What is truth? The amazing thing is that the answer was standing six feet in front of Pilate, because truth is not a proposition, truth is a person. That's the great revelation of John's Gospel. People think truth is something, it isn't, it's someone. And if you want to know the truth, then you need to have personal knowledge of this person. And therefore the most important question you can ever ask is, what do you think of Jesus? Or as the Jews said to him in chapter 8 here in Jerusalem, they said, who do you think you are? That's the most important question you can ever ask of Jesus. Well now, inevitably, as people died who knew him personally, Rumours and legends began to creep in and speculation came in about Jesus, especially in the city of Ephesus where John the elderly man was writing this very Gospel. I don't know if you are aware that there are many other Gospels that you don't have in your Bible. The Gospel of Thomas is one, a whole lot of them. There are weird stories in those Gospels. There's one Gospel that says Jesus as a little boy was playing in the street in Nazareth and somebody pushed him over into the mud and he pulled himself up and he cursed the boy with leprosy who had pushed him into the mud. Then there's another story about him fashioning little birds out of clay and then blessing them and they flew away all of this in his childhood. Actually, Jesus didn't do a single miracle until he was thirty because he couldn't do them without the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't do miracles as the Son of God but as the Son of Man filled with the Spirit and that's why he said, what I'm doing you can do too. So we know these are false and all these legends and rumours that gather around great people were starting to gather, but in particular there were two things that were beginning to be said which were false about Jesus. And John had to write his gospel to correct them. And I'm not going to tell you what they are. We're going to finish there. And next talk, we'll start with those two things. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.